last week. But today, we're going to talk about the goodness of God continued. We saw in the creation account in chapter 1 of Genesis that God said, then God did, and then God declared this good. We learned that the goodness of God is, is, the, is really the centerpiece of what he is and who he is. Now see, when we think about this, we think about it in a humanistic way. We think about it from an earthly perspective. And we can do that when we're talking about the God-man. We're talking about the incarnate Christ in his ministry. And you'll hear some more about that in the weeks to come. But when we talk about God, we need to avoid, and it's a very difficult task. It's actually something that we have to do, you know, purposefully. We have to intend to not think about God as we think about people. Because God in his love and goodness and wrath and hatred and justice and all these things, it is not as though we could find the best person that we could ever imagine and know that God is and does things a lot better than that person. We need to recognize that God, by the, by the title, by the word God, means the highest of all. That's what the word means. That's why there are, in every generation, in every civilization, in every idea and occupation, uh, all sorts of ideas of what a God is and who a God is. That's why to some people, nature is God because it's the highest of all things. That's why to others, humanity is God because humanity is the highest of all things. But the word God means the highest of all things. And so by the word in and of itself, the idea of God means that there can be nothing equal to him nor can, or it or you know, whatever or her, depending on who you're talking to, uh, and that nothing can share in that highness and nothing can be above that. Because anything that would share in that would equally be God and then anything that would be above that then would make that thing that was God not God and the thing that's higher than that God. Does that make sense? So... We need to realize that when we think about the goodness of God, it is not like the goodness of Grandpa. It's not like the goodness of a benevolent person. It's not like the goodness. As a matter of fact, the goodness of God in and of itself is not necessarily... Well, no, it's not. It is not a feeling that God has. God doesn't have feelings in His person as God. Jesus Christ in His incarnation had feelings as a human being. But those feelings were subject to his righteousness, therefore never led to sin and selfishness, but always were good. But in the creation account, we're not looking at the incarnate Christ yet. We will, chapter 2, and we will certainly show the parallels and show the point of which Moses finally wrote this down after centuries and centuries of verbal sharing. But God in his goodness is not something he feels. God in his goodness is something that he is. And then goodness is seen and revealed in all that he does. Because see, let's put it to a test. If James Tippins decided that because of some specific thing that had happened to some of you, let's just say that we had a little whatnot stand in the back selling for missions, selling some knickknacks for missions, and I just felt like, or we found out that, hey, you know what, only 10% of the prophets were going to the missions. And, you know, the person in charge of that drove up in a new Lambo today. And James Tippins came in here and tipped up over, over the tables and threw all the chairs out in the yard and kicked over all the microphones and says, Don't make the Lord's house a den of thieves. 
Would James Tippins be in sin? The answer is absolutely, at 100% of the time, at any way, yes. Matter of fact, I was in sin long before I kicked the first chair. I was in sin when I felt enraged in my spirit. Because I am not God. My wrath and anger is not good. Some people say, well, no, if we're angry about the things that God is angry about, then that's good. But what does the Bible say to do if our spirit is angered at the things that God is angered about? Shut our mouths and sit still, for he is God. You see that? That's the thing. But no, 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 we got to say something. we got to get in there. This is not good. So James can never do good to be compared to who God is and God's good. So that everything God does is good. So when Jesus rebuked the Pharisees, it was good. When God created the world, it was good because God did it. So everything God does, everything God says, everything God reveals, everything God is, is good. His wrath is good. His hate is good. Can you imagine good hate? See, this is something that we need to really think about. Because as we get into chapter 2 next week, and we're going to be talking about the image of God, we're going to have to really understand the call of the believer to love evil people. And so when we think about God's goodness and God's love, it is in two ways. God is good and is love in all his ways. But then all that God does is good. All that God does is love. All that God does is just. All that God does is righteousness. And so God reveals these things to us through the scripture. And only through that revelation are we able to pick up the pieces and go, okay, this is what God has said concerning himself. So therefore, we won't add to that pile. We'll just settle our souls on what God's word says. So God, in his goodness, is the point of his being. And when we see God so-called killing the world in anger, he is good. When we see God hating Cain, he is good. When we see God hating Esau, he is good. When we see God blessing the house of Egypt for millennia, that Joseph may be the one who co-regents for the sake of God's chosen nation, God is good. But what do we do as humans? Well, that's not fair. Of course it's not fair. What would be fair is if God went, <gasps> and destroyed us all. As a matter of fact, fairness has nothing to do with it. God is not subject to fairness. God is good. Because he's God. But yet, even though we know that, even though we hear these things, beloved, it's so hard because we all went to middle school. We all homeschooled in middle school, or whatever it is we did, we all went through the, 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 the season where we learned other cultures. We all went through the season, I pray that you did, where you learned about mythology, where you learned about uh, comparative religions, where you learned about the ideology of human, human beings who can always have a new idea concerning deity and righteousness and all these things. And we've learned that you know Zeus gets upset, sends a lightning bolt, the lightning bolt causes a rat to fall into a stew, the stew kills the guy and the guy becomes a demigod. I mean, you know, just silly stuff. Like this cause and effect thing that's out of control, this chaotic idealism that, you know, these powerful things are just humans with great abilities. 
And none of us believe that, but we do subject the God of the Bible to that thinking indirectly, inadvertently, subconsciously. We do. We do. I mean, none of us should have a picture of Jesus in our head physically, but we do. And for a lot of us who grew up in the 70s and 80s, the picture is this blonde-haired, blue-eyed, pale guy that looks like he needs to get out of Woodstock. That's what we think. Or maybe we watched Ben-Hur. Or maybe we watched the Ten Commandments with, not Ben-Hur, that's the same actor. Uh, Maybe we watched, uh, (laughs) I'm sorry, you know, maybe we think Charleston Heston is what Moses looked like. Maybe we think that, 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 you know, we have this idea that this great-grandfather of ours is, is how God is. This decrepit old wise man with a big long white beard and no hair. I mean, don't we? And I see generations of millenniums, millennials now when they talk about, and I ask the question sometimes when I'm in this conversation, well, when you think of God, who do you think? And some of them, they tell me the guy that played on Bruce Almighty. What's it? I can't remember his name. You know, the movie where this man plays God. They look at an actor. Some people say Jim Caviezel is what I think about when I see Jesus in my head. That's great. It's just what we need. But we all have a picture in our head. The question is, as to what the Word of God teaches us, is it erasing those pictures? And is it placing a proper image, not an idol, but the proper revelation? Because you know what an image is? It means idol, a replica, a lookalike, not the real thing. So when God says, let us make man in our image, He's like, let us show ourselves in this, but it's not ourselves. Same word for image and idol. When the idols of Isaiah are supposed to be destroyed and the image of God in creation, the exact same word in the Bible. All languages, the exact same word. It's the word idol. Let's make men in our likeness. That's the point. So we're going to start to see that we need to just take a deep breath and we need to inhale the revelation of God through the Scripture and understand that as we look at creation... There are a lot of things. We had some interesting conversations Wednesday night. That there are some things that God has allowed us to understand intricately in our world. There are some things in our world that we know because of scientific advancements and and, and, and just incredibly, I don't know, from the Renaissance on. I mean, we have a lot of thinking people in the world that are always looking for a smaller piece of life, that are always trying to examine the processes of the cosmos, and yet they're always left wanting. They're never satisfied. There's never been a scientist in the world who's got it from the table and go, I found it. Man, I'm so glad I can retire now. They die at the desk looking for the next thing looking for the next answer, looking for the next particle. Because no matter how small we can make the universe in our grasp, it is never answered as to why and how. And the Word of God answers that. So the Word of God is not supposed to make us enjoy the pursuit of scientific discovery, but scientific discovery is supposed to make us go, (laughs) look what else God has shown us about Himself, and we're still in awe. That's not why Genesis was written. uh, Moses had no idea about subatomic particles. He had no idea about proteins. He had no idea about dietary things. 
He had no idea about kinesiology or physiological construction of the body. He had no idea about different blood types or any of that stuff. And that wasn't why God gave him Genesis 1. God gave him Genesis 1 so that we could see and behold the reality of God sovereignly creating the intricacy of all the infinite cosmos and creating a people that he would call his own through the death of his son Jesus Christ. And that is good. And that is why the world exists. And we talked last week about the goodness of God through that we see not only in creation, but also in the ministry of Jesus where he, he washed the feet of sinners, he fed sinners, he fed reprobate people, he, he loved on them and prayed for them and wept over them. But we don't need to mistake these things and slide them all into this tiny little box and press it and say, no, this is how God is and this is what God does. Let the word of God reveal to you who God is and what God does. We learned over the last five weeks that God in Genesis 1 created out of nothing everything. Out of nothing. And the explanation there is is poetic and the illustration there is, is dynamic. It's just amazing. It's powerful. That God out of nothing created everything and that in that everything without God continuing to create and order it, it was chaotic. It was chaotic. If God had not separated the light from the darkness, if God had not separated the waters, if God had not separated the land, if God had not separated the species, if God had not separated humanity, it would just be this wild panentheistic animal kingdom that we would just sit back and watch. See, that's what what some mindsets say. Panentheism is is a mystical philosophy. It's a religion. That basically says that there is this creator, cosmic deity, God, highest of all things. And he sort of went poof and spun it all into being. And he's just watching it like a pinball machine to see where it's going to fall. And every now and then he'll flick the flipper. It's not how it is. God ordered the world. He ordered the world. And the scripture teaches that God decreed it and said it and did it and is doing it still. That Jesus Christ, by the word of his power, upholds the cosmos. Upholds the order of the world. Upholds all created things, which is everything. Everything. So out of this chaos, God created order. Out of this order, God created life. And out of this life, God purposed and finished redemption. And then out of redemption, God And out of the promise of redemption, God created the word and put time together. And here we are living in the day where we can look at the promises of God and know that we have eternal life. Because he promised it. And we see that he's powerful to do it. And we see that it has been fulfilled and completed in Christ Jesus. There are two things we learned about the revelation of God in the creation. One is that God is able, and the second thing is that God alone is able. God is able to create and to complete, and only God is able to create and to complete. We, we discussed the idea that only Jesus could give eyes to the blind. Only Jesus could make limbs grow. Only Jesus could command a corpse to come back to life and be restored. And that the person receiving this created work and the object being created had no part in it whatsoever. 
There was no part in anything in creation. There wasn't this beginning substance that God started with. There was nothing. Then he created all things out of nothing. And then we see that the scripture shows us not just in the creation account, but the creation account is the, is the bedrock. It is the foundation of the gospel. And that no man can come to believe and rest in the finished work of Christ for his salvation except that God the Spirit make him a new creation and satisfy or, or finish, satisfactorily finish the work of regeneration. This is, you must be born again, you must be recreated, you must be made new. And beloved, people throughout the centuries have been saying, oh, God is sovereign in creation. God is sovereign in salvation. God is sovereign in regeneration. He's making us all new. And then they make their newness in the mirror of their life the purpose of living. And they make that newness the anchor in which their soul rests. Let me give an example of what I'm talking about. There are well-meaning people in the world who have the right language, who have, use the right words when it comes to the gospel of free and sovereign grace. But yet they will sit there and they will tell others that you know that you know that you know that you have eternal life because of what God is doing to transform your life into His image. And that is a lie. That is a lie. The creation wasn't beheld by God and God went, Well, look at all that. This is good stuff and I made it. <laughs> no, He said, Look at what I made, therefore it's good. God is not making His people good. Christ declares us good. Christ's goodness is credited to us. Just like the goodness of God creating the world, God's goodness was credited to His creation. It's imputation. It's imputation. In the same way is true when the gospel is made alive in our hearts, the imputation of that knowledge, the imputation of righteousness, the imputation of goodness. We are not good, beloved. God is good. And this is the part two of last week's sermon. See? God, in all of His goodness, is the only one that is good. I made four specific points about the goodness of God revealed. And the first one I said last week is that God... The goodness of God is revealed in creation as we've reviewed this morning. He makes things and those things are good and perfect and glorious and complete because He made them for their purpose. Now I want to challenge you on this. God says to the prophets that He causes calamity. He creates evil for the day of trouble. Is evil good? In and of itself, in its essence... That seems like a conflict, doesn't it? And I've seen people run this in a, in a, in a comical way. Yep, evil's good. Okay. Evil is good in that it is, exists. It exists for the purposes of God. Ultimately to destruction. Well, it was, it was evil that those people arrested Jesus and lied about Jesus and killed Jesus. Yes, but God said it was good. It pleased the Lord to crush him. You see how much we have to change the way we think about God and his goodness? When James would say all things from above, all good gifts are from the Lord. In the context of what? What does James start his letter out? Rejoice when you face various types of trials. That your suffering may produce what? 
steadfastness, perseverance, rejoicing. Peter says the same thing in Peter 1, chapter 1. Rejoice. Rejoice. The occasion of the command of rejoicing in the goodness of God is always in the midst of the broken, chaotic darkness of this world. Anybody, everybody's unbelievers, atheists, and Satanists are rejoicing when things are going our way. It's a given. Because we mistake rejoicing with enjoyment and happiness. God is good and He reveals His goodness in His creation. He made it because He made it, it was good. So when Christ redeems a people, His death is good. His murder was good. His suffering was good. And I'll have to say this, hear what I'm saying, not what I'm not saying. The implications of what could be are hypothetical. It's not what's being taught here. And to implicate what's not being taught is to assume, and to assume is to bear false witness, and to bear false witness is wicked. Does that make sense? And if you're like, what are you talking about? Don't worry about it. Everybody else does. If the shoe fits, as my grandmother used to say. God, the goodness of God is revealed in creation. The goodness of God, we said last week, is revealed in redemption. That God is good in the redemption of his people. Just like God is good in the destruction of the wicked. He's good. Just like a judge is good when he executes a sentence on someone who's guilty. He would not be good if he goes, yeah, I know you're guilty, but man, he just... Those shoes, man, you just got me. I like those shoes. You're free to go. That's, that's not good. God is good. And His goodness is revealed in this purpose of creation to show that God alone, alone can make all things good and all things good creatively, supernaturally, divinely. He will do this for His people. That reveals the goodness of God. We talked last week also that the goodness of God is revealed in His sovereignty. God is fulfilling all that He has decreed and said that He would do to show Himself as Himself. That's glory. To see God's glory is to see Him as as He is. The fullness of all that He is. If we could put that in terms, and I've said this years ago, if we put this in terms of our human relationships, if someone sees you in all your glory, they see you in your birthday suit. You hide nothing. It's how you come in the world. It's how you go out the world. God's goodness is seen in his sovereignty. His purposes will stand. He will create the world. And in the world and out of the world, he will create his people. And out of the world, he will save his people. Then he will destroy the temporary reality of the world that he created as an instrument, as the land, as the landing pad of redemption. And then he will create a new world eternally for his purposes with his people. So the Bible says, you create a new world, infinitely glorious. So in the sovereignty, we see two different ways in which God's sovereignty is played out in creation and out throughout the whole scripture. There are many ways, but two specific ways that we learn as we glean from Genesis chapter 1, and one is in providence, that God is using all things for his purposes. Good, bad, the ugly, and indifferent. All things. 
God put the serpent in the garden, as you'll see, and God called Satan to go and to deceive. Well, that's just absurd. Folks, the Bible reveals this to us. We have the oldest written letter of the Bible is what? It's the book of Job. It's the oldest letter in the Bible. Job was before the creation of the world? Yes, Job's letter predates Moses' writing about the creation of the world. So if I write a letter today about my birth, that letter is post my birth, even though my birth is before the letter. See what I'm saying? Moses wasn't around during the creation of the world. He wrote it down in his lifetime. The world had been here a while. So Job is the oldest written letter of the, of the Bible. And the Bible starts out talking about the fall of Satan. The fall of Lucifer, the angel of light. The glorious, most glorious, most beautiful, most magnificent angel in the heavenly realm. Because he was so beautiful. Why was he beautiful? Because God made him that way. Why did God create Lucifer? So that Lucifer would reveal the reality of what creatures and creation can do. When they look at themselves. And instead of looking at God and saying, thank you, God, for I see your glory, Lucifer looked in the mirror and looked at God and went, it's not too far off here. And in his heart, he said, I should be standing next to God. In his heart. That's what the scripture says. So God threw him out with a multitude of the heavenly host. With a majority. And out of that, he threw them, he threw them out of his presence. But yet, in the book of Job, it reminds us that now the enemy, in the spiritual sense, Lucifer, we call the devil, the deceiver, the Satan, the adversary, the evil one. He poses as an angel of light. He poses as a messenger of righteousness. He poses as one who declares the truth of God's word. That's the work of the enemy. And so in that dialogue with, Jesus, with God and the enemy, with Lucifer, God says, what are you doing? Here's a paraphrase. And he says, I'm seeking to see who I might destroy. And God says, why don't you go get Job? And Lucifer says, because you won't allow me to. I can't touch him. And God says, go touch him. He'll still praise me. How did God know that? Because He's sovereign. He's sovereign. In His providence, He purposed everything for His glory. Blessed be the name of the Lord. When do we say that in our spirit? When we get good news. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Praise God. When was that written in Scripture? When Job was suffering in his flesh, suffering in his mind, suffering financially, lost his entire business, everything. His friends had left him. His wife was scorning him. He couldn't get any worse. And then his messenger comes and says, Master, your house has fallen and the roof has fallen in and killed all of your children and their families. And Job says, Blessed be the name of the Lord. What? 
the Lord gave and the Lord took. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So next time we bless the name of the Lord, let's remember the context from which that sprouts. What we would see as chaotic, demonic garbage. Why is my life so upside down? Beloved, God is sovereign in His providence and He's sovereign in His provision. There is nothing that we are experiencing as the elect of God that is not in the goodness of God's purposes for us. And Paul makes it very clear in Romans chapter 8 when he says this, For God causes all things to work together for good for those who love Him and are called according to His His purpose. And in provision, and I, I closed last week out talking about provision in Genesis 22 where Abraham is taking Isaac to be, to be sacrificed. And Paul writes in the Hebrews that Abraham was so willing to sacrifice his son, he got up early the next day and set the, set the wheels in motion. We're going to go do a sacrifice. The Lord going to build an altar up here on this mountain where the Lord has told me to go, and I'm going to bring a sacrifice to the Lord. Here's my servants. Here's all the stuff we need for it. But there was one thing missing from the sacrifice, from the preparation, and that was the animal to kill and to slaughter and to bleed out and pour before the Lord and burn. And several times Isaac asked the question, Father, where's the sacrifice? And Abraham answers him each time and says, Son, God will provide for himself a sacrifice. And Paul writes to the Hebrews and said that Abraham was given such a faith to understand and believe the promises of God that even though he knew he was going to kill his son, he had no hesitation and no doubt in it because he knew that God was able to raise him from the dead. Why would he even think that? Did God ever tell him that? No, God said, I want your son and I want him now. I want you to go kill him. But why would he include, why would he infer such weirdness about being raised from the dead? Because God, years before he was ever conceived, promised that through his son, he would be the father of many nations. So if God's going to kill my son, who I waited 13 years to even see, now he's a young boy and now he's going to kill him then I guess he's just going to raise him from the dead. That was his conclusion. What kind of faith is that? That's a God-given faith. That's an affirmation of what God does in the hearts of his people when presented with the gospel. You ever counsel someone with the gospel and it doesn't help them? And they're laboring over how they can work and find righteousness and work and please the Lord and work. And we share with them the gospel of grace, free and sovereign. And they say, well, I understand. It's just, there's got to be more. That person hasn't been born of God. Because they can't see the gospel. They can't see that the true good news is that we rest in the Sabbath, who is Jesus Christ, our righteousness, that God has done everything. He alone can do everything for the salvation of His people. And there is no one for whom Christ died that will ever be lost. They will have eternal life. And God's goodness is seen in this sovereignty. And ultimately, I've already said it, and this is a review, but God's goodness is seen in the finality of these things. The finality of creation. He's finished with it. The finality of redemption. Jesus said, it is finished. The finality of glory. It will be done. 
So if God always proves Himself powerful and able and willing and, 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 and all these other words that we like to come up with, why is it that it's so difficult? Because we are fleshly things. We are broken and sinful, depraved things. And that's why it is not about we getting our minds settled on the issue. Or our, that's, why it's so, that's why it's so easy for so many people to really make a hobby out of theological study because the theological study continues to keep their mind focused on the attributes of doctrine rather than Christ. And it has no good benefit for the body of Christ from a shepherding point of view. You need to hear the goodness of God in redemption and sovereignty and provision and providence and the finality of God's goodness and power in redemption. That it is a finished work, beloved. Don't worry. Rest. Faith is rest. It's not knowledge. The way we think it is. Knowing the one true God is knowing he's finished the work. He is the Sabbath. We sang it this morning. In three syllables. Sabaoth. He's the Lord of the Sabbath. He is our rest. All this comes down to the interesting idea that we see here in Genesis 1 where God said, how many times you see that? In the beginning, God created, and God said, 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 and God is saying, God said, and God said, and God said, and God said, over and over again. What are these things supposed to help us understand? That whatever God says is. I want you to hear that again. Whatever God says is. We, we call them in our, in, our, in our nice little packages the decrees of God. That which God has declared. I do declare. Y'all ever heard anybody say that? Not much anymore. Maybe in some old movies. Or that old Sugar Baker show from the 80s and 90s from Atlanta. You know, I do declare. I mean, you hear that. I do declare. What are you about to declare? What are you about to say? God declares. God decrees. And the decrees of God or ultimately to be understood as this. This is God's desire, will, and He does these things out of the counsel of His own will, and He needs no other. He needs no other influence. He needs no other substance. He needs no other persons. He needs no other thing. He needs no permission. He needs no, he needs no court. He needs no fairness. God decrees, I am the Lord. There is no other. I will do what I wish. See, we've seen that in antiquity. We've seen that in history with kings, monarchs, queens, tyrants. And it's powerful, isn't it? Mobsters. If that had been a career choice, I could have thought about it as a kid. Man, mobster, that's pretty neat. You raise your hand and people stand up. And you lower your hand and people sit down. And you point this way, they go that way. You do like this. And you do like that and they fall off a bridge just because you tell them they have to. That's not God's decrees. God's not maniacal. He's good. 
He's good. And God has decreed. And he's decreed a lot. Now I'm going to give you a quick idea of what God has decreed in the creation of humanity. God has decreed in the creation of humanity as we, as we see in chapter 1. Let us make man. And he said it was good. And then he's going to zoom in in chapter 2, the, latter, uh, the, the next part of chapter 2. Um, in verse 5 of chapter 2, he's going to zoom in and show you details of the creation of man. Humanity. But when the scripture says, let us make man in our, army, or in our own image, God is saying, let us make man in our own image. And then he says, and let them, he decrees, he declares, let them have dominion over the fish, dominion over the sea, dominion over the birds, dominion over the sky. That's why we've learned to fly. That's why billionaires can spend our money to fly to space and fall back down. So they can beat their friends. It's really cool. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. And if it was like 100 bucks, I'd probably go. Have dominion over the heavens, over the, over the sky, over the livestock, over the earth, and everything that creeps and crawls upon it. Let us make man in our image and let. So God decreed that he would create this type of creature that would bear his likeness in what? Whatever degree he decided. What degree does he teach? In his rule, in the picture of his rule over life and creation, and in his picture of revelation and glory. Now we'll talk about that all next week in more detail. But God decreed in his goodness to make humanity in his image and that is the one part of it the other part of that is that God's goodness is seen in the countenance or if I can say this in the idol of the nature that's found in humanity the nature of God was not found in humanity the goodness of God was not found in Adam and Eve but it looked like it how do we know it wasn't the goodness of God? Because first option they got, they took. They're not God. Remember what we talked about when we started our sermon? Anything that's next to him and equal in essence of goodness or above him. That would be God or there would be two gods or more gods. Man is not God. Creation is good because, as we've said, God said it was good. It was not because of the character of what was in creation. And this is true for humanity. Man, humanity was called good. And he, then God says, as we'll see, it was not good that the man be alone. Why? Because the man needs what? help. He cannot exist without another. He cannot procreate without another. He cannot subdue the earth without another. He cannot rule without another. Humanity, the elect of God, cannot live without their bridegroom. And the strange thing about this picture is that the image of Christ as the bridegroom and the church as the bride, Adam was the one in need. 
not the woman. The character of the one who made is what is good. So that when God says, my image is in this creation, it is because I have displayed my goodness. The law was written because God said, and it was written, therefore it is. And it displays his goodness. And in the display of God's goodness, if we compare it to that which God says is good, in that which God says displays his goodness is not necessarily able to be good. Righteousness and goodness flows from the creative power of God then. And God alone brings righteousness. God alone declares goodness. God alone is good and righteous. And those who suggest otherwise are not from God. Well, but we have to listen with critical ears, not suspicious ears, not, not fearful ears, not, but, but critical ears. I, I dreamt this morning. I had a weird dream this morning. You know, typically when people are in my dreams, they're people that I know. And there's always this oddball that I've never seen in my dream. But this morning, there were 40 to 50 people in the dream because I was in a Bible study in this decrepit old building somewhere. And there was a group of men sitting in the back and they were hodgepodge of characters. It was the craziest thing in my life. I just, I woke up going, this is so odd, I won't forget it. And the whole time I'm teaching, they're talking, not loudly, but not softly, amongst themselves. And they're tearing out pages in their Bible and they're looking and they're, they're handing, and I don't know why they just couldn't say, turn here. One of them said, here, look at this. And he tanned it to somebody else and I'm, I'm trying to teach. And they're judging everything that's being said. And I thought, oh, maybe they're Bereans. <laughs> so after service, I go to talk to them, and then I wake up. But I think I was going to ask them if they were Bereans. But there's a difference in being a Berean and judging what I say by what the Bible teaches in the context in which I teach it, and holistically and synergistically in that it all works together to reveal God in this way. Versus being critical by trying to find the mistake trying to find the error because that's not good. That's what the spirit of, 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 the, of the Israelites in, in, in the Exodus, God delivers them out of captivity, out of slavery, out of bondage. And they go, we were better off back there. Because God's provision of manna, God's provision of the twister of fire and smoke, God's provision of miracles and power wasn't sufficient for their fragile little souls. Because they would rather be comfortably, comfortably enslaved than tragically free. Now, I don't know about you. I don't want to live in the woods and eat bugs. But if the option is go to prison or eat bugs, buddy, give me the plate. The option to be in a concentration camp or live in a swamp, ride an alligator for, to work, get me a leash. But that's, that's all what? That's very hypothetical. 
What will we be? We would be just like the rest of the Israelites if God did not grant us great faith. To hear the gospel and to see God's work, that he has declared it, he has promised it. Therefore, we can rest in it. In Romans 11, we hear Paul quoting. He says, and in this way all Israel will be saved, as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies, Paul says, for your sake. Talking about Israel. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts of the calling of God are irrevocable. The decrees of God, the promises of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, that means you did not believe, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, because they didn't believe, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by mercy shown to you, they may also now receive mercy. If God can be merciful to the elect of the Gentiles, He can be merciful to the elect amongst the Israelites. Why? Because that's what He says He is. That's what He says He'll do. But He's not going to be merciful to everybody. He doesn't owe it to anybody. He's not trying to establish a relationship with all humanity. He already has a relationship with His elect people before the foundation of the world, which is why He said, let there be light, and there was light, and the light was good. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all, all those who now receive mercy. And then there's a doxology in chapter Romans eleven thirty three is where I'm reading right now. It says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. And see, that's what I, it just sort of flows through my brain as I talk about this text. As I talk about these things. Oh, the depth and the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are your judgments, God. How unsearchable are your judgments and how inscrutable are your ways. Wow. You know what that tells me? Stop trying to figure it out. Take what God has shown and sit in it. Rest in it. Be still in it. Know Him. He is the God of rest. The God of grace and mercy is the God of rest. The God of wrath and vengeance is the God of fire. There is no rest. There is no hope. Except for you be and belong to Christ. Be found in and belong to Christ. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been His counselor? Or who has given a gift to Him? That he might be repaid. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. So it is. Amen. So now we see the nature of man. Man is nothing but that which is created. That God owes nothing to. That has done nothing for God. God did not create man and go, wow, this is great. I really like that. Now, I've created things. I've written music before that at the end of it, I'm going, I'm so glad I made this. Then the song became the idol. Or a story became the idol. 
Not some of my children, when they, when they get to a level in their artistry and they draw and they go, man, that's, that's, that's my magnum opus right there. It's my greatest one, my biggest thing. And we're always trying to do more. God doesn't look at this creation and go, wow, look how awesome this is. God knows how awesome He is and therefore all that He makes is good. And what makes it good is that He created it for His purposes. The nature of man. Beloved, we are... I mean, it is... It's, it cannot be contested that man is sinful. It cannot be contested that children are sinful. It cannot be contested infants are sinful. By nature... And what ultimately happens is that men think of themselves too highly. When we see ourselves as the elect sometimes, we go, I'm so glad, that Lord, that you gave me faith. And I'm not mocking being grateful and thankful because that's what Romans 1 says the reprobate don't do. But sometimes we thank God for our faith. Because faith is the operation of our hope. Faith is the object of our hope. Beloved, and this might be a little play on words, but ask yourself this. Is it your faith that saves you? Or is it God's work that saves you? Grace. What saves you? Christ saves you. Faith rests in Him. That's what the Spirit does. It doesn't give you understanding of certain things and then you come to a conclusion of your own free will or that God even gives you a conclusionary idea. That goes, what? You know what? I resolve. How many people resolve things that they're absolutely certain of every day of their lives only to change their mind or change their heart sometime in the future? Till death do you part. Not. It's not going to happen. We're fallen people. It's impossible. And those marriages that stay together from high school to 90, praise the Lord for it. Praise the Lord for His mercy on those that don't. You'll always be my child. I'll always love you. You'll always have a place here. And then they say the wrong thing when they're 25. And you're like, don't you never come back to my house. You see what I'm saying? We can make all sorts of resolves, decrees, promises. They'll be broken just like that. But we don't intend to. God's promises can't be broken. God's purposes can't be thwarted. God's power cannot be stopped. God's salvation is done. We think too highly of ourselves. Humanity does. Even so, we often think higher in our humility as we pant after God's grace, as if our piety and our panting can control the wrath of God. And this is when I read the Puritans, I get nauseated sometimes. It's like they spend all this life, their entire life, trying to prove some piety to the Lord when the Lord has declared them righteous. Serve your people and stop hiding in the closets of study. Got to have some balance in this stuff. Men think that their thinking is great. Sometimes they think too highly of their own thinking. 
and in the state of mind to find themselves justified before God because of their knowledge. And I personally believe that we live in a day, for those of you who understand what I'm about to say, where most professing believers are nothing more than neo-Gnostics, which Christ is against. Paul is against. James is against. Sometimes men think their service and their works and their obedience and their zeal counts before the jury of the divine. But yet, what happens? There is no trial. We're not going to get a chance to explain ourselves. There's no court for the judgment that has been made. The guilty is the verdict. and No amount of well-meaning or well-doing will suffice before the Lord. We are either declared by His power righteous because of Jesus Christ's righteousness credited to us, or we are guilty. And that is all of grace. It is all of mercy. It is all of kindness. It is all of love. It is all of God doing what He does in time for His people. For His people. And the saint, beloved, we as the saints ought to be thankful, and out of that gratitude, we ought to give our lives for one another till death do us part. There's a big tale in the lives of many people as to their first response in the context of the assembly when it comes to the preaching of the New Testament letters. And you can sort of sense where people are in their spiritual maturity. But beloved, there's one thing that somebody who really gets the gospel will understand, and they will understand that they have, a, they have a, an obligation to the people of God's, of God's church. Some obligations exercise themselves small. Some are invisible. Some people are cleaning floors and wiping toilets and cleaning houses and washing cars, and some people are praying in their bedrooms. Some people are donating money to help with bills and finances, and other people are fixing houses and carports. Some people are feeding, and some people are helping grow a garden. Some people are just slipping a couple of groceries at the doorstep. There's an obligation that we have for one another. Why? Because that's what God has created his church for. To do what Christ has done to serve his people in the, live, the giving of his life. We too, in like manner, not perfectly, not righteously, not in any divine way, we are to emulate him. We are to walk in his way. Why? Because that's what we've been created to do. We've been created to walk in good works and service to the Lord, which means service to the least of these. Beloved, we have a pandemic, an epidemic rather, of, of, of high and mighty in the ministry. And the greatest gift that God has ever given me in my entire life in the context of my ministry has been humbling me over and over and over again. You know the primary way he does that? To show me my self-righteous anger. That stews in the pot of my soul. That I think is not even on the burner. But it's broiling. 
And all it takes is just one person to break the patina of that, of the surface of that thing. And, and you won't see it, but it's there. It doesn't have to be acting it out is much worse. But not acting it out is no less evil. God has put us together for that purpose, beloved. And he's powerful to do it. He's promised it. He said it. We are his people. We are the people of his own possession. We are his body. We are the body of Christ. We are his glory. We will reveal who he is. Because he has revealed who he is to us. And in that sureness, in that surety, in that certainty... We have absolute hope beyond all things. So let us pray about how we live together to the praise of His glorious grace. Isn't that what all the New Testament teaches? Praise God for His grace. So that's why I have to impose that upon a new, an Old Testament theological thing because that is why we come together each week that we may be mindful of one another. And it's not easy. And it's not perfect but it is purposeful. And God has made all provision. His divine power is everything we need for life and for godliness. Let's pray. We love you, Father, because you have loved us. We love you because you do love us. For if you had not loved us, we would never love you. For we would never be shown the truth of who you are to us. Father, our relationship with you, how we stand in relation to goodness, Lord, is not because we are good. It's because you are good and you have called us good. Because the good son has died in our place and the good son's righteousness has been given to us. So it is nothing of us. It is not our will. It is not our motives. It is not our zeal. It is not our work. It is only you. You alone have saved us through Jesus Christ. So, Father, help us to see that more every day. Help us to be reminded. Cause us to pick up your word, Lord. Bring people to mind that we may pray for one another. Father, draw us to the assembly so that we may be able to serve one another. And, Father, we thank you for your gift of life. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.